0: Welcome back to Relative Digressions. I'm Renner. I'm Flick. And we are in the middle of looking at Trial of a Time Lord. Cart is once more in session. I am in the dock. Please be seated. So, Terror of the Vervoids. Terror of the Vervoids, otherwise known confusingly as the ultimate
1: foe. Otherwise known as episodes 9 to 12 of Trial of a Time Lord. Uh, So what happens? We're on a space liner... On a cruise, the doctor lands with new companion Mel, and almost immediately they are catapulted into a mystery. Uh, deliberately, in fact, the captain of the ship manipulates the doctor into investigating. There's a plant biologist doing some classic Doctor Huey experiments. I assume they have a union at this stage. We should find out she is a good guy, Doctor, but perhaps a little ethically compromised. These seeds could solve a future famine, but in classic Doctor Who style, they also turn people into giant walking plant monsters.
0: Rather infamous plant monsters.
1: Uh, Yes, they are the eggplant in the room. We will talk about them in a bit. As if that wasn't enough, whilst the plant monsters go on their rampage, have a little conversation about the plant equivalent of veganism and decide that they should kill the humans and compost them. Fair enough. There is another guy going mad, deciding to crash the spaceship into a deadly black hole, which it's skirting the fringes of, whilst a third guy plans a takeover of the entire ship.
0: There's a lot going on in this story.
1: There is a lot going on. There's also an investigator who's turned up originally to investigate the plant scientist, even though she ends up being like the least criminal of the crew. He has disguised himself as an alien race called the Mogarians, who are also on the ship transporting a special cargo, which happens to be of a kind that will interact lethally with the plants. And it all, it mashes together in a big complex way in episode four. But
0: I would argue, mostly coherently, Yeah, yeah, no, it's surprisingly coherent for quite a dense plot. And the thing is that they're doing this on top of putting in a few trial scenes although not quite as many as in previous episodes. Yeah,
1: this is the least densely trialled, because honestly, if if you punctuated it as much as the last two, it would be so hard to follow.
0: But also with a plot which is is not what is actually happening, because once again, uh, despite the fact that it's the Doctor displaying these memories from the Matrix this time, and therefore they shouldn't be edited, they are not... Well, they haven't happened to the Doctor yet, but when the Doctor looked at these future memories... Uh, this is
1: the. Right. Shall we address the elephant in the room? Because we've already run into the it. The future thing. So, so the first story, The Mysterious Planet, we delved into the Doctor's past to look at what Doctor Who had been. Then in Mind Warp, we looked at what Doctor Who had become now. Now we are looking into the Doctor's future, and the shoe is on the other foot. We are no longer in the Valyard's territory prosecuting. Now the Doctor is giving his defence and he's based his defence on an adventure he hasn't had yet. You can sort of reason, we see the reasoning here, that if he can show that he will do good in the future, then to sentence him to death would be to deprive the universe of that. But it raises certain questions. Both in and out of the fiction, I would say. First of all, how does the Doctor learn about this adventure in order to cite it in his trial? Did he sit, like, was he allowed to just sit in the Matrix and watch his entire future? That seems like a
0: breach of the laws of time. (laughs) It's the laws of time make an exception for when it's cool. Uh, I suppose you could, like, let someone review their future. They select the bit they want to cover and then you erase their memory of the intervening... I but, like,
1: how, how could he tell them which bit he wanted to watch until he'd already watched it and knew which bits were Oh, useful? no, I'm suggesting
0: that maybe he watched it. He was like, this is the bit I want to use. All of it, his entire future. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then he was like... And then he selected the bit he wanted to do and then he erased the rest of his, his mind. Maybe only up to the bit where he found, like, the bit that he wanted to... A bit that he wanted to include and he's like, okay, this'll do. I'm not going to look ahead. So... I don't know, I mean... I mean, it doesn't make d- much sense. Did he
1: watch it at double speed? Oh, well, if <laughs> he do I see, it at the same speed. see the problem, yes. <laughs> if he watched it at the same speed it was happening, he would actually just be like <laughs> looking in a mirror.
0: <laughs> no, I think it's like, you know, when uh, a, a YouTube video has, you know, you can sort of set something to two times speed. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> he's, he's... They can just download his future directly into his mind. Mo- I mean, uh,
1: I should point out, incidentally, like, I, I'm. Making jokes of this, but actually, I, I'm not picking holes in this in the sense that this is wrong. I think that this is absolutely the kind of thing where it should be like, you no, know, they're time lords, they're time sensitive aliens. We can't understand this, but it works for them. Indeed, indeed. But it is. The, it, the it, thing is that some of the way it's presented here makes it comical rather than alien and a bit head-scratching
0: this this is sort of the issue especially because there's this the the doctor's consternation that things were not as they were when he reviewed it is very much one of those but that just raises further questions (laughs)
1: yeah like with mind warp the tape's been altered but in mind warp the doctor's like no that's not what happened and then he was like, oh, I don't remember what happened. So now him remembering what happened is irrelevant because it hasn't happened yet. So actually it's his
0: memory of what he watched on a tape of his future that's wrong. Right, right. I mean, it's essentially, you know, you, you know that if Stephen Moffat was pulling this, it would be twice as confusing. But it is the kind of thing he might do. But it's not really played in a timey-wimey way. It's not quite got that winking thing. Yeah, actually, one of the things
1: I like about it is that it just kind of leaves this paradox and weirdness unspoken. Yeah. It just leaves it there on the table for you, whereas Moffat would have had to front and centre it. Right, it's like, yeah, he's looking at the Doctor's huge deal. It's odd here, actually, that the Valeyard, who in Mind Warp firmly held the Doctor's memory is failing, the the Matrix is infallible, etc., now says, oh, the Doctor must have edited the Matrix, which is an odd tipping of his hand.
0: Right, because as soon as you admit that, you're like, well, yes, someone can. But possibly, because we are now getting past the halfway
1: mark of the trial and building towards the culmination of the plot. You could suggest that the Valeyard is panicking. He's realised that it's too transparent that somebody's edited with the Matrix. So he needs to recalibrate and be like, okay, well then let's pin that on the Doctor.
0: Right, it's interesting. There's also a point of which as well, like, because, spoilers, as we'll discover in a future episode, uh, the Valiard is in some sense a future version of the Doctor? A possible future version, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. And it's interesting how... The thing the doctor chooses to defeat the Valyard is a future in which he is good or remains good or whatever, and that and that being the thing that begins to shake the Valyard's hold on the trial is interesting to me because, kind of, the Valyard represents the the opposite direction for the doctor. Well, the doctor's defence, as he presents
1: it, isn't that he will you know remain constantly good. He he does in fact essentially allow in in a meta commentary way that he's perhaps gone gone a bit wrong that the, the mind warp era doctor who is not so good but he wants to show that he will improve and that is obviously back into the territory of this whole thing being a commentary on the
0: show itself look we we can become something new you know that you haven't really mentioned it yet but one of the key parts where the doctor's case starts to fall apart is when the recording that we're watching reveals that the Doctor will genocide the Vervoids, destroy all of them. The Valeyard
1: is being a bit cheeky here because there's only four Vervoids. Right, but... but the Doctor does make a point of ensuring that no leaf or seed lands upon soil to grow anew. So at the end of the day, the Doctor is like, no, this nascent species can't be, and I'm going to make sure of it. So so maybe the Valgad isn't exaggerating.
0: Maybe, maybe that's just what happened.
1: And of course, this is doubly interesting because Genesis is in the Doctor's past, and it's this big, important part in the Doctor's past. And, and as we've remarked before, Genesis is the story where the Doctor decides that
0: he can commit genocide. Indeed, and he's ordered to do so by the Time Lords. <laughs> So, uh, but, but he doesn't But he does not know But
1: the, this accusation That actually Genocide is in the Doctor's future Is true It will be borne out he will eventually destroy
0: Scarrow. He will wipe out the Daleks. Right. And of course, the Valiard, as a possible future version of the Doctor, almost, in some sense, you feel would know that. Yes,
1: exactly. The Valiard embodies... Uh, we'll talk about this more next episode, but the, the very
0: existence of the Valiard almost proves his own case. It's a, it's again one of the things well, we we're talking about it now. It's not like they knew what was going to happen in Doctor Who's future when they wrote this, and yet it does. Anti- it feels like it anticipates...
1: Right, because it's a very dangerous thing to attempt to write a story from the future of the show. And they, through a mixture of good judgment and good luck, kind of pull it off. I think they completely pull it off. Hold it! Just a minute! I don't remember that! How could you remember? These events are in your future! So some people have raised the idea that, oh, we would start with the Doctor being very harsh and unpleasant back in season 22, and then in season 23, he would soften and he would develop, and the idea that this was an ad hoc nonsense. Mm -hmm. But in the trial scenes here, Colin Baker clearly is playing the Doctor differently to how he played him in Mind War. He clearly is showing that the Doctor is a softening and b wants to grow softer still and then when we jump into the story of vervoids in the matrix he's even more friendly and cuddly it actually directly reminds me
0: of capaldi's arc
1: where yeah i think that's a bit we mentioned that on mindwarp and i agree
0: yeah 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 um it's a, it's a deliberate acting choice and and if i took one thing away from this story in particular actually it's that like I wish Colin Baker had had a on-TV like proper season 24. I think he would have been much more fondly remembered, and I think he would have had some context. Part of showing the Doctor is
1: developing into a more friendly persona comes from giving him a new companion, and we jump straight into the companion-Doctor relationship in the thick of it, and it's so much more different to Perry. Yeah, the the doctor's relationship with Mel. If he was kind of bullying of Perry in an unpleasant way, Mel is bullying him when we first see them, but in a fun banter way.
0: The character she reminded me the most of is Donna, and I mean that in a really good way. Yeah, but both some of how she looks, but also how she's intended. I think she was intended for, to come across. And I know some people don't like Mel. Quite a lot of people don't like Mel. I really liked her. I really like her here. And I think there are some things which are are intended to come across as annoying, which I I didn't find annoying. Right, so she isn't popular. She was probably amongst the
1: least popular companions. I think that's not necessarily the same now as it was a while back. But certainly at one point, she was, you know, down there with Adric. Right, (laughs) a character
0: who I also, you know...
1: But it is odd that, you know, JNT decided to make his new doctor last season unpleasant. And it went really wrong. It's very strange that in sketching out his new companion, JNT doesn't seem to have learnt his lesson. Because his brief for Mel is basically about how annoying she is. It's actually a very
0: misogynistic uh, outline document. Oh, right, the, the the one that she he's written up. Yeah, I, I haven't yeah. seen this, but if you're looking... Yeah, so this was kind of my
1: suspicion. So he describes her as scintillating, fascinating, and irritating. And then he goes on to say that she comes off as an annoying women's liver, except when she wants to get something, when she turns on the crocodile tears and does the weak woman act. I mean, that's horrendous. It It's terrible. It's a terrible and misogynistic brief, but it's also like in light of launching Colin Baker with, let's make the character unlikable, oh, that was a disaster, to then sketch out, let's launch a new regular cast member and make them unlikable
0: again. Yeah, it's just like, why haven't you learned? It's very
1: strange. What's really interesting, well, that's very interesting. Um, Actually, in many ways, that's probably a more interesting aspect. What's interesting from a nerdy fan point of view is that the document also details her first story that we never get. Oh, that's interesting. Has it been inevitably made into an audio since? No. Parts of it were taken for a BBC book, I think. Mm -hmm. But um, he details this whole story that's almost like like a full-on pitch brief about they meet up because she's, I think, auditing like, doing forensic computing, which was, like, cutting edge at the time, for a company where the master is doing financial scams.
0: (laughs) That's quite fun.
1: I don't know if he planned that they would then make this story next season.
0: Uh, That would be my assumption.
1: But this raises the other temporal weirdness that's going on here, that Mel is a companion who, at the end of this season, will leave with the Doctor, having joined the Doctor. But this isn't... A time loop. This isn't how she joins the Doctor
0: originally. Right, she's pulled out of time. Having had a first meeting with the Doctor. Right, and so then she meets the Doctor, goes off with him, but at some point, the Doctor presumably needs to, like... So he has to drop her off,
1: then have a first encounter with her, where he pretends not to know her, presumably, which presumably he's had to tell her not to tell him anything about... So then he picks her up, and they go on adventures until Terror of the Vervoids, when the Time Lords then pluck her out of time, and he's left companionless again. He then has to go back and find her after his post-trial self has dropped her off and pick her back up to be travelling with her when he becomes Sylvester McCoy. I mean,
0: yeah, the slightly absurd companion shuffle is... I mean, uh, the obvious comparison is someone like River Song. River Song, yeah.
1: So River Song got more convoluted later on, but originally she had a very elegant she's going one way and the Doctor's going the other thing. Yeah. Whereas this is like... It's going to be a bootstrap paradox, but then it right turns away from being a bootstrap paradox, which raises all these other... <laughs> but again, they just leave all of this on the table. And if you're not thinking about it, all you see is the doctor leaves with Mel. And then, you know, she's in the next
0: story until she leaves. I tell you what that reminds me of, actually. The Nolan recent film Tenet. Yeah, it is a bit like that because I won't detail it if you've not seen it, but a thing that happens in Tenet because there's some time nonsense going on is that things happen and it's only after you think about them, you're like, no, hang on. What was going on there exactly? And this... (laughs) <laughs> this phenomenon you just described is yeah. very similar i'm just like i can imagine this now where they, they they did think about what they were going to do but it doesn't slow down and go this is what's happening what i like about this is it has the confidence to just be like it's doctor who there's time travel keep up i'm not sure that that is what it's doing i'm not sure that any of
1: them really thought this through. sorry
0: i you so see that might well be true they're just so immersed in Doctor Who that they're just doing it. You yeah. know, it's it, they're not thinking about the fact that there's time. And this is why I like it more than uh, Moffat-style timey wimey front and sentence, Actually, yeah, I, I think Doctor Who is a brilliant show. One of the reasons it's a brilliant show is that its premise lets you just do stuff. You can play with time travel, and it doesn't need to be the focus of your story. It's just a thing. It's a tool in your storytelling toolbox. Yeah, in a very similar vein the captain of the liner,
1: Travers, presumably no relationship to Travers from the Web of Fear, but Uh, that's not really out. He could be. but um, Travers has had a previous adventure with the Doctor in a sort of Time Wash-esque manner. Yeah. So the Doctor meets Travers, and they both remember this past adventure, but this past adventure isn't a past adventure that we've seen, but it's not necessarily an off-screen adventure because this is a future story. So that could be another future
0: story. Right, it's not in the end because the Doctor was forcibly regenerated by, by right, BBC. Yes. Um, but yeah, I do quite like it when people in the Doctor Who universe are genre savvy about Doctor Who. Right, so the thing about this, it, it's weird because
1: this is the the story with the fewest actual trial scenes because it's possibly the story that's doing the most of the trial conceit. It's got so much meta stuff going on. Right. So from the very first moment when he meets Travers, they do this very classic Doctor Who dance of somebody's up to no good on the ship. You've just turned up. You're not meant to be here. Clearly your stowaways throw them in the brig. And then once the Doctor's been cleared off, Travers says to not keep him under too close a guard Uh, and the security officer sort of asks what he means and Travis says like well he knows the doctor and like if you've got a mystery you need to solve you accuse the doctor of it and throw him in a cell then let him escape and he'll go and solve your mystery and Travers knows this and he's doing it on purpose
0: it's really brilliant it's a trick that I feel like the master sometimes plays And this is kind of genre savvy, but it's also about because the Doctor's character is tied up with the show itself. Characters who know how the Doctor tends to act. The
1: obvious case in point, and the reason this is so relevant, is that it's what the Valyard has been doing to try and pin the Doctor, pin a crime to him. The the Valyard is doing all of this meta stuff. The whole trial is a meta examination of how Doctor Who stories were. Right. But actually within the story, the characters, bearing in mind they're in the future, inverted commas, they know how this works because they've now done it before so many times. And it's not just Travers. Mel picks up on the fact that they're supposed to be investigating. Then the doctor says, no, I think I'll just sit here. And Mel's like, what do you mean? And he's like, look, if we go into this suspicious room, there's going to be a dead body and then someone will discover us and I'll look guilty. (laughs) so I'm not going to go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is really funny when we've just recently discussed the Deadly Assassin, where that's exactly how the master frames him. Well, this is
0: the thing, and it's, it's interesting that we've spent two episodes doing, like, our Doctor Who revision... We'll talk more about Trial of the Hole next time, but I will say now that this was the episode that made me go, I actually really am bought into what Trial was trying to do. Right? It's got the fewest Trial scenes, but it is the most Trial story. Right, absolutely. It made me kind of hungry for uh, Trial 2.0. Not entirely, but like, (laughs) Love and Monsters, you could argue, is is doing something not dissimilar. Yeah. But I would really be interested in sort of modern Doctor Who that looks at modern Doctor Who. It's so cliche to do it nowadays, though. Well, this is the thing.
1: That self-awareness is so
0: well it's yeah exactly and I, I even as i say it i'm like oh but it could be so bad i mean even if it wasn't bad it just wouldn't be as interesting no that's true i suppose it's not as it, when they were doing this there wasn't anything quite but, but you know i mean i found this interesting and i'm steeped in 2020s ironic yeah but that
1: part of why this is interesting is it's being done by people who are kind of making it up for the first right, time Fine, sure and possibly don't even fully understand what they're doing but they're feeling it out I have to say, my memory, well, my memory of Vervoids was almost non-existent. I discovered watching this back, almost like something I, I had seen it before. But it did not live in my memory at all, like the thing that I was watching. But Pip and Jane, Pip and Jane Baker, they don't have a good reputation in fandom. They're a bit sneered at. They're kind of famous for slightly naff, not fully understanding the show, a bit cheesy. Lots of long,
0: silly words
1: and purple prose. They invented the Rani. Ah, oh, and therefore invented
0: every character in New Who. Uh, And So they were husband and wife?
1: Husband and wife team, yeah. I was watching this and I was like, this is much cleverer than I remember Pip and Jane writing. And I don't know if that's just because I'd internalised the fandom, or, but I mean, I don't think any of the other scripts are this clever.
0: took okay, a photo of them. They just, they look like nice people. I don't know, it's Yeah, like...
1: This is a quaint <laughs> old couple. Right, exactly. <laughs> I will say that the actual plot underneath this stuff is very trad.
0: Well, it, I mean, I think directly there is a character reading Murder at the Orient Express at one point. It clearly is an Agatha Christie mystery in space.
1: Not only is it clearly an Agatha Christie mystery in space, which Doctor Who likes to do, but the Vervoids are an absolutely design-me-a-Doctor-Who monster. And I mean, you wouldn't necessarily draw your human-plant monster to look quite as much like an orchid. But human-plant hybrid monsters, that's very Doctor Who. To an extent, it has to be trad for the meta stuff to work, yes, of course. although
0: despite it being trad, it feels fresh. It doesn't feel like much in the way of... I mean, you've watched a lot more Old Who, so you can more spot the stuff that's being retread, perhaps. Right, but you're right. I have watched a lot of Old Who,
1: and the thing the thing that really struck me was I was like, this feels like an episode
0: that's fallen through time from a season I never saw. Right. I think my initial reaction was actually what it reminded me most of was RTD. Uh, Specifically, I thought it was a bit like a 10 Dollar story. But actually, once you said to me, you made this comment about it being an unseen era, I absolutely feel that too. And I... I love the idea of anticipating your own creative process, understanding Doctor Who, not as simply a TV show that goes out every Saturday, as an incidental thing that's happening, but as a kind of evolving thing and feeling ahead to where you think it might go and to some degree succeeding in that it's really hard to write what will, what is yet to come within your own creative yeah. thing and somehow they manage to do it. Just to refer back to the first
1: part of this series, where we talked about the, the steely glint in the eye of John Nathan Turner, bearing in mind that he's casting forward to the future of this show that Michael Grade has just tried to cancel. Right, right. And he's like, look where this show is going to go, Michael. And this is what... <sighs> look where it will be
0: in several years' time, when
1: still it runs.
0: Right, I mean... <laughs> it's sad because he was kind of wrong and kind of right. The show did continue... But also, Baker didn't get that third season. I want to watch the third Baker season, which Vervoids is an episode of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
1: so for you, it felt like it was prefiguring tenants. Yeah, I mean, Voyage of the Damned. Of course, they both have the cruise liner thing. Also, the spa in
0: Midnight. Yes, the spa in Midnight. The, those leisure settings are a little different than, say, the Leisure Hive, which is very much sci-fi leisure. There is something about that main
1: deck with what are essentially just a load of garden chairs and stuff. Right, it's
0: a bit, but it's a bit Butlins. It's a bit. It yeah. As, no, oh, mm, is it Butlins? Centre Park? No. Why? Mm.
1: It's like village face. It's got an odd class character. I mean, there is some of that in the tensions, both the racial and the class tensions that motivate the many different character motivations.
0: When you say racial, do you mean like between different species?
1: Uh, yeah, between the Mugarians, the
0: Vervoids, and the
1: humans. Because the cast is entirely white, if I recall.
0: Uh, yeah, I was going to say. Um, one of the things that when I rewatched watched for, I Damned recently, is that it's interesting what Davis does with class in that episode. Uh, very much the Doctor's sympathies are with the people who aren't the rich ones who deserve to be there. If you see what I mean?
1: I mean, is it? I mean, that story has a reputation for being very sneering at lower classes. Really? The lower class people are like incredibly fat, incredibly unaware, no understanding of culture. They cause a load of problems,
0: get killed off quite early on. I wasn't just thinking about the competition winners, Uh, but Astrid is the other character I was thinking of.
1: That's... I mean, it is class, but it's also a
0: specific Doctor Who cliche of the lower decks. That's true, I suppose. Which we don't actually have here. No, no, it's interesting that there's a weird kind of, like, middle-classness to a lot of Doctor Who, to be fair. And... It wasn't just ships, I think, but I sort of felt like it was a sensibility that I saw here as well. Maybe something about the way it features leisure.
1: I actually think that the characters here and their different motivation stuff is more interesting and better than Voyage of the Damned. The cast here are great, and the characters, none of the characters are a sketched-in fill-in. They're all fairly rounded, and they have to be to make that really quite complex final episode work. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) The the Vervoids, it has to be said. There is something very comical about the Vervoids. They all have kind of RP accents. They kind of conspire together, but it's it's a bit like listening to like some preppy high school debate club having a debate on veganism, but coming out of the mouth of these plants that look an awful lot like Georgia O'Keeffe paintings.
0: Yeah, and I have to talk about it. The the, the vervoids, right? They don't look like something that should be going
1: out <laughs> before the watershed. You you can't not talk about the look of the vervoids because they're very elaborate and colourful
0: props. Yeah, yeah, proudly rampant, <laughs> proudly and erectly yeah. um, on display. It reminded me a little of the work of H.R. Geiger in certain key respects. I'm picturing Geiger vervoids now, or possibly the opposite,
1: vervoid Geiger, where instead of like a skeletal fixation, he had a plant fixation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing I will say about the vervoids, I think the big distracting problem with them for me is that they do look very, very humanoid. They have these amazing props for the heads and then the body is essentially just a guy in a green morph suit with leaves glued to right. it right
0: all jokes aside about the head you you, know, you can't say of the heads that they aren't distinctive
1: you can tell the the separation of church and state between the prop department who made the prosthetic head and the costume department who made like a morph suit covered in leaves
0: it's only a little bit away from uh someone in a ghillie suit It's almost always a problem in
1: fantasy stuff with plant people that they often are like a plant head on a person. At least here they are, they have transformed people. So it does sort of make sense. That's true. That kind of makes sense. The gloves are
0: quite clever so that when their hands are closed, they look like flower buds, and that's quite nice. I will say it doesn't help with some of that weird debate society look you were mentioning earlier. They're quite large, and the sets are quite small. So when there's like five of them or whatever, on there's four or five of them on, on the screen... Yeah, they're sort of clustered. They just all feel very clustered and clustered. The blocking is not good. They're, it feels like they're going rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. Yeah, and it just it looks more absurd than it really has to. Big, throbbing stalks of rhubarb. If you were doing this in a modern setting, I think you'd, you'd have the budget to have larger sets. And it would help quite a lot, I think. I am arguing Chris Chidnell for a vervoid return, and I I will not accept anything else. They were played by dancers because they wanted them to have
1: this particular movement. That's quite interesting. A Doctor Who did that not uncommonly. Uh, One of them was played by a dancer called Peppy Barsa, and the idea of Peppy the vervoid became a joke on set. But apart from the fact that they were just standing around laughing at this guy's name, to get the cliffhanger to episode three, to get the effect they wanted where the vervoids exude marsh gas, they just pumped the costume full of smoke.
0: That seems not safe in any way.
1: Right. So basically the whole production team had turned this guy's name into a joke. And then they're like, okay, now we're going to suffocate you. They did a take, filled the suit with gas and then the moment they cut somebody just had to like wrench the suit off him and he was passing out Just quite grim And then they did a second take (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, I I know I'm
0: laughing That's not funny
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I I feel a little sorry for Peppy Borza
0: You must know who I am Yes, Professor Lusky
1: We do Then you must also be aware that I mean you no harm All animal kind is our enemy, Professor. Even you
0: There's something about this episode I just feel is a bit special, and it comes down to this way in which it really is trying to take itself out of just being another Doctor Who episode and is thinking smart about the show. And the interesting thing is, of course, apparently Pip and Jane hadn't watched much Doctor Who. I mean they, they they had written it before at this point. Sure, but like maybe part of this feeling... But they didn't, yeah. It's I mean
1: one of the criticisms of them is that they didn't really understand the show. Well,
0: but that's maybe that's how they sort of tapped into whatever the magic in yeah. Vervoids is. Well, especially because they're in the midst
1: of a season which is like wearing its understanding of the show on its big flashy collar. Yeah. I mean, like I say, this, this didn't actually feel like an RTD or a 10th episode to me. It didn't feel like... A Colin Baker. So it didn't feel like anything. I watched it and my memory of it was by far the sketchiest of all the trial stories. In my head, it was kind of a, eh, okay, it's also there. It's so like Mysterious Planet, love it. Mind Warp, no, but Brian Blessed. And Ultimate Foe, we'll get to it. And this one was just kind of like an ellipsis. And I was watching it back and I was just like, this, I don't, I don't even feel like I've seen this before. Either this story or this. Ilk of story, it really felt like it was like a videotape that had fallen through from an era of Doctor Who in a universe that didn't exist. But to play Valyard for a moment, would a whole season of this actually be this? Having said that it's the most trial of all the trial stories, even though it's got the fewest trial scenes,
0: is that what makes it so interesting? So uh, the interesting thing for me is that if you were doing the next season, because you'd probably be sorting out the Mel situation over that. I don't know. I don't think they would have done. I don't think they would have done. Well, OK, if I was writing it, I might consider doing so. I don't know. There's some opportunities there to have the same sort of referential stuff. If I had to guess,
1: they'd have done a story with the master that was a sequel to that first story, and then shown some flashbacks.
0: Right, right. Which
1: itself would have been quite trial-like, I suppose. Right,
0: this is what I mean. So maybe they would have... The trouble is that I sort of feel like it's hard to touch. I think there is something there. I think there is a specialness to to, to to vervoids that taps into an energy that could have survived beyond the end of trial, but we'll never know what it looks like.
1: My other question is, is part of that je ne sais quoi, because this story is able to cheat in that it actually doesn't have to be a complete package and it leaves bits elliptical and that is part of what's giving it this air because Mel's introduction, we've talked about at length now and how strange that is. You've got the, this is in the future, talking about unseen stories that haven't happened yet, that might have, all of that stuff. It's even got the fact that there are scenes that were erased from the Matrix or tampered with in the Matrix. So we never see the truth of what happened. And unlike with Mind Warp, where we will go back and fill it in later, there are actually bits of Terror of the Vervoids where we're just not told what happened. and And some of them are quite plot relevant, that actually, if you wanted to write the narrative of terror of the verboids without any of the trial framing there are bits missing right when they did the novelization would did it have the trial framing yes in fact there are more trial scenes in the novelization huh
0: interesting so maybe that's how it does it but i think that's a really strong thing in terms of doctor who actually exists to create a strong impression that it is to giving you something that doesn't exist but could so in some sense, maybe the fact that we never got a season 24 helps as well. Yeah, yeah. Actually, when you phrase it like that, it makes me think of Joe
1: Martin, a Doctor Who that could have existed, but we haven't seen. Oh, yes.
0: I tell you what as well, in The Fugitive of the Judoon, one of the things that I think makes Fugitive of the Judoon probably the best episode of that series is the fact that Gat and the way she's dressed and just something about her interactions with Joe Martin's Doctor feel like they are coming from... This is a version of the Time Lords that we've not seen. I believe that there is a era of the show that this is, or an era of the Doctor's life that this is, but I haven't seen it. Right, I don't know if it's
1: just the presence of Ritu Aya, who plays Gat. Like, it feels like that that style, that tone that Joe Martin and Gat have of the Time Lords possibly comes from like a parallel universe where instead of Netflix commissioning the Umbrella Academy, they made a, a new era of Doctor Who.
0: Yeah, and it it I don't feel that the timeless children entirely cashed in on what the promise of Fugitive of the Jadoon yet, but I am, you know, interested to see what's gonna happen. But it's just it just occurs to me as we're talking that the only time I think I've ever really felt like ooh ooh, ooh in the same way as I did when I watching Vervoids is watching Fugitive of the Jadoon. And
1: also, between us recording the last episode and this one, the upcoming run of Doctor Who is being referred to as one long serial. I- indeed. But
0: obviously, that's made people talk about trials. Yes, absolutely. So we're, we're relevant. Almost, kind of. I mean, not really. But So-so. when this comes out, whenever you're listening to this, rarely, if ever. Um, we guessed you towards meaning. So I, I think my rounding up would be if you are for some reason bound to only see one episode in every season of Doctor Who, uh, this should be, oddly, the episode that you watch in this season. Although, I, with Trial, it's a bit of an odd one. Like, can you do that? It, it, yeah, I don't think you can, really. But if you're going to, watch this one. It's good. I enjoyed it. Really made me rethink a lot of feelings about stuff.
1: Uh, Yeah, I was genuinely taken aback by how alien it felt. Not the tone of the story. I mean, just like... I know all of Doctor Who. Where did this come from? Yeah. Possibly the strongest fact in the Doctor's defence is in fact that this is compelling watching because the Valiad comments, this I must see. Right, and so... The Valiad is saying, I want to see more of the Doctor. Indeed. I want to unpick the Valiad more, but that's... But that's... Next time will be a time to pick over the Valiad in great depth. Well, I think that's absolutely... I don't know if you noticed go on i I think it might slip past a lot of people, and uh, I'm sort of hesitant to mention it, but the vervoids really do look like knobs. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Relative Digressions. You can find us on Twitter at Whodigressions. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K. And this is a production by Renner Robson and Felicia Parker. We'll be back in the future.